I don't like to look out of the windows, even. There are so many of those creeping women, and they creep so fast. I wonder if they all come out of the wallpaper as I did. Ooh, that's crappy. That's really crappy. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, and welcome to Outside of a Dog. My name is Jonas. And I am the man from the other side of the wallpaper. No, I'm Christian. Hi. And welcome back to our series of two cishet white guys discuss women's struggles and the literature that they write about them. We don't even have Annika as a guest this time as an alibi. Sorry. And today we're talking about one of the great American short stories from the end of the 19th century, The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. The story is presented as a series of surreptitious journal entries written by a woman who has just had her first baby, and her husband, who is also her doctor, uh, has rented a mansion for the summer where she stays in the top room, an old nursery with windows at all sides, and she is basically confined to that room in what in the late 19th century was called the resting cure. It was thought that for women who had just given birth, it would be best to rest, to have very little mental stimulation, not to see anyone, not to do too strenuous activity, and to just recover from the ordeal of childbirth. She finds this very taxing, though, and she starts imagining that there is something about the yellow wallpaper of the room that she is in, where she starts seeing a woman behind the pattern. This woman seems threatening, but also fascinating to her. It is mysterious, and she longs to find out what is the deal of this strange woman in the wallpaper. And eventually, it seems that she becomes the woman in the wallpaper, who is always described as uh, stooping and creeping. And it ends with the narrator creeping all along the wall. Uh, her husband breaks down the door that she has locked and finds her and faints seeing his woman in this state. And she just continues creeping along the wall, clambering over his body. There are some perils to be found between the unnamed narrator of The Yellow Wallpaper and its author, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Gilman also suffered from postpartum depression after the birth of his child and had to endure this resting cure that Jonas mentioned. But Charlotte Perkins Gilman wouldn't just take it. She grew up in a intellectual household in New England. One of her aunts was Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And she was a feminist, a thinker, a writer of basically utopian feminism. So really, really put a lot of thought into her writing and into the yellow wallpaper about how women were treated at the end of the 19th century. She was apparently influenced by Darwinism, as so many thinkers were end of the 19th century. And I was quite surprised to find out that apparently she was a major racist yep. who propagated the use of African-Americans in work camps to deal with the, quote, Negro question, unquote. Yikes, with a capital Y. W with such a capital Y. But absolutely still had a fascinating life. She really tried to live the ideals she held. Um, one of these ideals was that she was an advocate of euthanasia. So when she was diagnosed with incurable breast cancer, she 
committed suicide uh, by taking an overdose of chloroform. So she was a very interesting and very opinionated thinker. And the Yellow Wallpaper is probably her most famous work to present us with her opinions. So, Jonas, this is a cornerstone of feminist literature. And as we mentioned, we are maybe the least qualified people to talk about this. But what aspect do you find most interesting to delve into? Well, I would like to talk about basically the question of insanity, especially gendered understandings of insanity or mental illness or madness, um, all terms that have been used with overlapping definitions, but sometimes interchangeably since the story was written. Because it is very straightforwardly a story about that. Uh, you could read this on a surface level as a story of a woman who is prescribed a certain treatment by the men in her life, both her brother and her husband, who are both uh, physicians. And this treatment, instead of making her better, makes her worse and drives her mad. She sees this woman in the wallpaper and imagines what this woman is like. She doesn't just see the woman in the wallpaper, as the introductory quote uh, said. She also sees women creeping all over the landscape. And then in the end, she becomes such a creeping woman. So you can read this as the portrayal of a woman driven mad by the men around her. And this is something that we find a lot, isn't it? The, the mad woman in the attic. The, exactly. And she is literally in the attic. She is at the top of the house. And it seems that she's not the first mad woman who is confined there. There are sort of rings in the wall where you could shackle someone and the bed is bolted down. So it implies somebody uh, could have been tied to that bed. And also part of the wallpaper has been scratched off already. So it seems like some pretty dark stuff went on there. But also this can be sort of read as a justification of the mad woman in the attic. She's not mad when she's put there, but she is turned mad by the mistreatment that she experiences very explicitly at the hand of men. What is also interesting is that her madness manifests in that vision of the woman behind the wallpaper, um, the woman that is basically trapped behind the wallpaper. And for a large part of the story, it's not quite clear what the narrator's relationship to this woman is. She seems to be afraid of her to a certain degree, but in the end, she rips off that wallpaper in order to liberate that woman. And I mean, that is a very, very obvious image that the madness offers some sort of liberation, that the, the mad woman, just like the mad woman in the attic, that famous book by Gilbert and Guber, is kind of a liberated woman. Gilman herself had commented and said that she had been accused of wanting to drive people crazy with this story. And definitely when you read it, you can sort of start feeling this sense of paranoia, this sense of dread that sort of comes over you. But she said she wanted to prevent people from going crazy, especially by drawing attention to this practice of the rest cure and discouraging physicians uh, such as her husband at the time, from prescribing it. The impetus of the story seems to be pretty obvious. I must admit, sometimes it almost seemed a little bit too obvious that this was about the negative influence of the patriarchy on a woman, that the madness was really just the, the fault of man, which it was. For example, one part of the resting cure that the narrator is prescribed is that she's not allowed to write. She's not allowed to journal. She has to do that in, in secret. And that seems to be a very, very clear indicator that men are regulating the cultural output of women um, and limiting it. 
exactly the kind of thing that Perkins was doing. Uh, I think th there was an editor of a magazine who refused to publish the story because he said, I don't want to disturb my readers like I have been disturbed by having had to read this story. So this is quite literally the patriarchy telling a woman that they will not uh, let her speak, that they will not let her publish this story that she has written. So I was almost struck that it was that clear that a woman at the end of the kind of Victorian or Gilded Age was writing so bluntly and so obviously about the negative influence of the patriarchy. Yeah, on the one hand, it is so, as you described it, blunt. And I think that's what made for the story's impact and the controversy that it caused at the time. But I think that does not explain why the story has endured so much. Because on the one hand, it is really blunt, and there's this really obvious interpretation of it. But then on the other hand, it is a lot more subtle as well. And there's a lot of things that you can interpret in lots of different ways. For example, the story has been read as an allegory for the press of the time. At the time, there was this phenomenon of yellow journalism, this very scandal-driven, salacious journalism, which Gilman hated. She published a magazine herself, and she saw that very much as the opposite of the yellow journalism. So, I mean, we made a joke about that. The wallpaper, and it is a yellow paper, so yellow journalism. You could interpret it that way. And then there is a reading that connects it to Gilman's really horrible racism, which you already mentioned. Scholars such as uh, Denise Knight have published about this, and the way that the woman in the wallpaper is described is certainly uh, very comparable to racialized ways of talking. She is stooping, she's seen as less than human, she is seen as bestial. She is, of course, associated with the color yellow, which at the end of the 19th century was a color that uh, was very much used in reference to especially Asian immigrants. And at the time, of course, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first act limiting immigration into the United States. So there is a current uh, that you can read the woman in the wallpaper as this sort of racial other that is threatening this white woman in the room. Uh, so I think there are all these layers to the story which make it a rewarding read to this day and which open up new avenues of looking at both the story and the time. And I think that's why it endures. And that's why it's not as blunt, maybe. You're absolutely right. And I think there are two things that, that I would like to address. One of them, the kind of historical argument. You mentioned that the color yellow, and there is the question, why yellow? And yellow, especially at the end of the 19th century, has had also this association with the decadent movement. I just enjoy hearing that as I sit here in my living room with my new yellow velvet curtains and feeling very decadent right now. Yellow is kind of seen or was seen at that point as a disreputable color that is somehow associated with deviance and with decadence. So that is also a connection that is very much linked to the time. On the other hand, this endurance is you're absolutely right. It's not just because it's a blunt message, but because it is also something that just is still true, that especially women have to kind of deal with how they are treated and how their bodies are regulated, how this medicinal view is still very, very much a male view. There was just last year a lot of reports about how medicine is still mainly based on and or focused on male bodies. And women sometimes even suffer from that when it comes to way, for example, certain drugs are administered and so on. Because 
medicine it has this very, very, very androcentric point of view, and female bodies are subject to that. But it doesn't take two uh, men to kind of uh, white knight their way through this um, to to know that this is horrible, and it was also horrible in the 19th century. And horror is something that I would like to talk about. Wait, this is maybe... wait, you would like to talk about? I, I the know. Gothic? I know it is so surprising. Absolutely. This is part of the course, obviously. But this is something that I think is almost overlooked, that this is, after all, still a horror story. This is very much in the vein of, let's say, Edgar Allan Poe, for example. These stories that are describing the protagonist sent into madness. Only in this case, it is not a man who is uh, killing another man for some perceived slight or because he thinks he has the evil eye or something like that. No, it's it's a descent into madness for a woman. So that's already an interesting aspect. But I think this is another aspect of subtlety. The way that the story kind of paints the picture of the woman behind the wallpaper is actually absolutely terrifying. And it can be even kind of separate from the 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 um the gender politics basically of the day. This is a, a very very thrilling and a very very terrifying description of something that you can imagine. How being confined in a space somehow in some subtle way kind of drive you mad basically. How that? Do you think people nowadays could empathize with uh, feelings of uh, anxiety and delusion because they're confined? to their homes? I don't know. I'm too busy clawing at my walls. This feeling of horror is very, very present. And again, it's it's part of a tradition, obviously. The end of the 19th century in both Britain and the US was a kind of revival of the Gothic. This is where you get Dracula. This is where you get Dorian Gray. This is where you get Jekyll and Hyde. And actually, the Yellow Wallpaper reminded me very, very much of another New England author who was a little bit later, but who also described these kind of limits of the human psyche of how fragile our minds are, and who was also intolerably racist. H.P. Lovecraft. That's interesting. So the the woman in the wallpaper is sort of an, a manifestation of an elder god in that reading. Lovecraft loved this story. Oh. Despite whatever else his opinion about women might have been, he really liked this story. He even wrote a short story that was called uh, The Dreams in the Witch House, which describes a similar kind of scenario, which introduces this Lovecraftian concept of non-Euclidean geometry, kind of a, a room that is somehow off. And I think that is absolutely something that everyone can relate to. You don't have to agree with whatever other horrible views these authors might have had. But what the yellow wallpaper definitely describes is this feeling of the uncanny, this feeling of something is not right. And that can be very, very clearly linked to the uh, cr criticism of the patriarchy. But it is also something that everyone on a very primal level can relate to. What I found really intriguing about this reading of The Yellow Wallpaper as a straight-up horror narrative is that it has all these trappings, but they're sort of hiding in plain sight. As I described earlier, there are implications that the nursery is set up in a way that you could confine someone there, that you could uh, strap someone to the bed or shackle them to the walls. And there are indications that that has happened and that somebody has already tried to rip off part of the wallpaper as far as they could from the bed. And this is like 
one of those cases in the horror movie where people walk into a horrifying situation that is obviously evil and is going to kill them and they don't notice. You know, just imagine you walk into uh, the top room of a mansion and you see, oh yeah, somebody scratched off that wallpaper there. This is where we'll sleep. I mean, <laughs> it's almost ridiculous. If your husband tells you that everything is okay and you shouldn't worry and this is the perfect room for you because of the windows, then obviously, why not? For me, as as a gothic scholar, um, that kind of jumped at me. There is a reason why the yellow wallpaper is not just a realist story about how the, the men are suppressing this, this woman. It, it needs this kind of tinge of horror, this tinge of madness, kind of really drive home the effect that the, the seemingly normal. Yes, obviously men decide what's going on. Yes, obviously women are hysteric and need to be controlled for their own good, that this is far from normal, that this is something that is horrible, and this is something that can only be expressed in a horror story. But let's talk about the style of the story, which is one of those cases of 19th century literature where I run into a problem. I just cannot suspend my disbelief that these are actually clandestinely written journal entries where the narrator again and again refers back to, oh, I'm really not supposed to write. Oh, uh, someone is at the door. I have to stop writing this now and then goes on for another paragraph. Do you think that is really necessary? Does that add anything to the story or could it just be written as an interior monologue and you would accept that, well, I don't know how she wrote any of this down, but I don't care because... Well, it's fiction. I actually agree. I, I, I think the suspension of disbelief for at least our modern perspective is sometimes a, a bit hard. But the bluntness I mentioned earlier is also reflected to a certain degree in the style, that the style is quite simple. It's, it's not very florid. Even in the description of this kind of descent into madness, it's, it is often very matter-of-factly and and. I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something that, well, doesn't seem necessarily uh, like a like a journal entry. Other than that, I think the style is actually pretty effective with the repetition of certain words, uh, such as the word Creep. creeping, for Creep. example. Creeping, Creep. creeping. It has this sort of haunting effect, um, which is uh, very, well... I'm, I'm trying not to make the joke we made at the beginning already, but it is just very creepy. Especially because it's never described what creeping really is. Is it just... Yeah, is, is, is the woman in the wallpaper sort of bestial? Is she walking on all fours? Is she... It reminded me of the yahoos in Gulliver's Travels as well. Or is she really just creeping in a more modern sense, like stalking or stealthily walking it that you're absolutely right it's very effective it's very evocative that as simple as the style sometimes seems to be it also leaves a lot to uh, the imagination the wallpaper is described as horrible and the pattern is described in kind of a specific way but you never really get a clear image of the pattern because the language never kind of seems to be enough to describe how horrible it is and how it really looks Definitely. You don't really know what the wallpaper is supposed to look like, and it leaves you uneasy. And by far, the best flourish of the story happens, um, I think, actually, at the point that we read in the beginning, 
where all of a sudden it switches, where the protagonist stops talking about the woman in the wallpaper as someone distinct from herself, but instead that she becomes the woman that came out from the wallpaper. Yes. And that is really scary and horrifying. And then all of a sudden you're thinking, wait, what? And then you start questioning your own sanity a bit because, wait, I thought I was reading this story of the woman who was staying in the room, but now it's the woman from the wallpaper and who is who? And they become one and the same, or maybe one has usurped the other and it's left very vague and very unsettling. This already sounds like we're talking about our highlights and lowlights, or in this case, the woman caught behind the wallpaper and the woman creeping freely out in the countryside. I think my highlight, not so much my highlight of the story, but my highlight of the experience of reading the story this time was realizing that actually she's not confined to the room. She can leave the room, she can go throughout the house, and she can go around the garden, and she can even go for walks and get some exercise. But still, because she cannot see anyone and because she cannot write or read, it is not enough. So I, I sort of misremembered the story from uh, way back when, when I read it in a class on women and insanity in literature. I thought she could not leave that room. But now I realize that actually the limited mobility and freedom she does have is not sufficient to keep her sane. And after all, that is what we're all feeling right now, isn't it? Where, you know, we can leave our rooms, we can even leave our houses to go for walks, but still it is a very taxing situation. My highlight is a very specific moment in the story. Namely, I'm going to read this short passage um, a little bit later in the story where the narrator says, Life is very much more exciting now than it used to be. You see, I have something more to expect, to look forward to, to watch. That little description for me summarizes very neatly, kind of mixture of both still horror, but this slow realization that, the, as you mentioned, that the woman is identifying with the woman behind the wallpaper. And just reading that kind of gives you this, this kind of tinge of like, oh, I see. It shows how quickly it can change from horror into something horribly positive, at least, for the narrator. I think my low light is really a mix. Because it is such a short story, which is so tightly constructed, there isn't much chaff to go around. My lowlight would be the already mentioned stylistic contrivance of these being secret journal entries, which didn't really convince me. And then also knowing about uh, Gilman's uh, views on race and the, the readings of the yellow wallpaper as an allegory for the intrusion of quote-unquote foreign races, Reading it this time really made me realize a lot more how racialized the terms in which the woman in the wallpaper is described are. And that just left a sort of bitter taste in my mouth. For me, the low light, to a certain degree at least, is the presence of the husband, John. Maybe that's just, uh, again, the white male speaking, hashtag not all men. But he is, from the beginning, is so obviously bad. Just the first description that he laughs at her and that he's practical to the extreme. And even back in the 19th century, that I think was was kind of a hint at yeah, that that is a bad dude, that is a bad influence. And maybe you need it, but I think it would be almost more interesting if the husband was more caring, if the husband was a little bit more empathetic and still he couldn't keep his wife from kind of being oppressed by patriarchy because that's what happens. However, Jonas. Is The Yellow Wallpaper a short story that our listeners should read? Well, 
I would say yes, because it is very interesting, because there is a lot to read in it, a lot to take from it, and because it is very short. Um, I happen to know for a fact that we both uh, read it the same way this time. We read it to somebody else, um, which maybe uh, was not such a good idea. It's, 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 it's not the kind of short story you would read uh, for a date, uh, but they, they didn't chuck us out yet, so... Uh, probably we didn't do irreparable They damage. haven't gone mad, as far as we know. <laughs> no, but um, I think it is something that you can read fairly quickly over the course of half an hour to an hour, and you will get a lot from it. So why don't you go ahead and read it? I not only agree with what you said, but I also think that this is one of those text that is almost indispensable like this like i mentioned this is a cornerstone of feminist literature and for a reason perkins gilman's perspective is so clear and yet so subtle and or it has been so influential that you should read it and as you mentioned it is short and it is interesting so i would say definitely yes but maybe you're not convinced by these two ringing endorsements and you want to read something else instead so christian what should these naysayers pick up? I would like to recommend a, again, shocking gothic story that is, again, from the very twisted perspective of a female protagonist. But this time it's, it's actually a, a more positive portrayal of female agency. And that is We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. And Shirley Jackson is probably one of my favorite authors. I, I really love her gothic fiction, very psychological very tender in a, in a weird way, but still horrifying. And We've Always Lived in the Castle is less of a horror story, but still very, very gothic. And I won't spoil anything else, but the narrator of the novel is um, a much more positive portrayal of the kind of mad woman in the attic. So We've Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. I would recommend another story of a woman who is confined and who due to medical treatment doesn't really do very much or can't really do very much but in this case she chooses this or at least uh, she thinks that she wants to do that and she thinks that it will do her good i want to recommend my year of rest and relaxation by otessa mushfegi i almost <laughs> recommended that this is creepy i it's almost, almost recommend very similar people it is about a young woman who just graduated from college and who thinks that in order to set her life straight, in order to overcome her various anxieties and troubles in life, it is best for her to sleep for an entire year. She attempts to do so with the aid of increasingly strong narcotics, narcotics which are prescribed to her by a doctor. However, it's keeps being interrupted. Uh, her former roommate and other people in her life keep thwarting her plan of sleeping for an entire year, much to her chagrin. And in the end, she succeeds, and her life does get better. Or does it? So my recommendation is my year of rest and relaxation. However, maybe you disagree. Maybe you think that uh, the wallpaper is trash and should be ripped out not just from the wall, but out of the books of literary history. If you think so, write us an email at outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Outside of a Dog. You can follow us on Twitter at Outside of a Hound. And visit us on our webpage, outsideofadogcast.com. And if you have some loose change lying around, why not give it to us and visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash outsideofadog. 
where for $5 a month, you can get access to our special episodes where we discuss adaptations of works that we discussed on the main feed. Now, there is no adaptation of the Yellow Wallpaper that we can talk about for our Patreon episode this month. So, Christian, what are we watching instead? Why do I have to say it? We, we got rid of that reputation. But let's stay with um, unreliable narrators. And uh, let's talk about the film adaptation of Nabokov's Lolita. So, find us on Twitter, Facebook, write us an email, and become our patron on Patreon. And come back next month for another regular episode. And Christian, what will we be discussing then? I, I cannot suppress it anymore. I am the gothic guy after all. And I think it's time. I think it's time to tell Igor to get the brain from the graveyard and, and fire up the old electricity machine and finally discuss Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We'll do that if by then... We're still alive! We're still alive! Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com We're checking our privilege. Check. It's still there. <laughs> nice. That's not what it... Okay. Anyway. Can you check your privilege like you check a coat? Like you give it away for a bit and then you have it again, but you're always sure that you'll always get it back? Ah, ah, ah. Uh-oh. All the single ladies, all the single ladies creep through the wallpaper.